Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. I'm not a real big donut person, so I, don't, I didn't start getting into actually being like, let's, let's go right now so we can get the donut until probably almost halfway through. I had my first donut, I think jam night or powder night. And it's like, oh wow, this is not a regular donut. The donut started being like, you know, I don't know how many calories you, you generally burn during your average fish show if you're, you know, dancing a lot like I do, but you're starting to get to the point where it's like, you're doing a three hour workout every day and you sort of need those extra calories. So I was kind of ravenously consuming the donuts by the end of the run. I'm a big chocolate fan. So the double chocolate was really delicious. It was a chocolate cake donut with a chocolate glaze on it. Jimmy's was also great. That was covered in sprinkles. I am also a big lemon poppy seed fan. So lemon was up there. And then of course the classic glazed on night 13, the uh, Simpson style pink with sprinkles on it. I was wearing the same type of earrings the whole run, like a pink donut with sprinkles on it. So it was fun to have that match. And I took pictures of every donut that I was trying. You know, some of them I had the whole donut, <laughs> which I soon again realized that like, if you're eating a burger and a donut every day, <laughs> you're gonna put on some pounds, all that dancing you're gonna do is not gonna be worth anything. You gotta wonder if any fans who went to all 13 nights of the Baker's Dozen had the foresight to weigh themselves before and after the run. 
And what do all those ticket stubs, bust outs, and bragging rights even weigh on the fish scale? I feel like leading up to that year, I was really working my ass off and kind of doing the whole rat race thing. And there was this moment, it was like five days into the Baker's Dozen. I was sitting on the train. I think I was staying in Brooklyn that, at that point and commuting into the shows. And I saw these guys, it must've been a Tuesday or Wednesday, right? That was so weird. Like we're in festival mode seeing fish and they're in their suits. And I'm just looking at them and thinking like, that's what I was doing like two weeks ago. And I like this way better. Right. So after that point, I kind of put things in perspective of like this pause. But other than that, the other big takeaway from the Baker's Dozen was I wasn't chasing anything anymore. So specific to fish, always leading up to that point, there was always something on my mind, like, you know, something I was chasing at that point. But after I left the Baker's Dozen, it literally pads out your stats, right? There's there was nothing I could think of off the top of my head that I would be chasing after that. It was kind of this like great equalizer, caught everybody up. You just heard from Susie Barros, Diana Hank, and Tim Donahue. And that was Undermines Season 3, Episode 4, Soft Open. Hi, this is Tom Marshall. I write lyrics for fish, but I'm also a fan. I go to the shows, I eat the donuts, and I host the podcast. This podcast, Undermine. This is our third season, and our first two recently passed the million milestone mark with one million listens. So, I'm not going to say this one million times, but I would like to say thank you. So thank you. There, I said it twice. So much for a no-repeat season of Undermine. In this season, we've been exploring the band's summer 2017 residency at Madison Square Garden, otherwise known as the Baker's Dozen. 13 consecutive shows, 13 different donut corresponding themes, no repeats. We're about to repeat ourselves, ourselves, but we'll keep it brief. The first episode was about the venue the band chose for the Baker's Dozen. The second episode gave some historical context of previous multi-night runs and how other bands have approached similar residencies. Actually, there are no other similar residencies. We talked about that too. Last week in episode three, we discussed the song choices Fish made in the years, then in the days leading up to the Baker's Dozen, and how setlist flow can drastically influence the outcome of the show. And that brings us to my favorite place, the here and now. Today, episode four is called Jam Filled. And frankly, that could describe exactly how my head feels right now. Moving on, we're going to once again look at the years and then the days leading up to the Baker's Dozen, this time examining several improvisational developments and how their evolution enabled Fish to fill those 26 sets of music at the Garden with one unbelievable show after another 
for nearly three weeks straight. If you want to talk jams, then you've come to the right place and the right time. We'll be talking jam-filled simples and lawn boys and tweezers in the very near future. In fact, immediately after this commercial break. Welcome back, and just in time for us to talk dicks. That is, fish dicks. Specifically, let's talk about that time on Labor Day weekend in 2012, when fish really fucked our face. Sorry if you're just walking in and overhearing your roommate's podcast. It's exactly what you think. So my name is Dr. Jake Cohen. I am a musicologist who specializes in, among other things, fish. The Fuck Your Face show is really, for me, I think one of the most important things the band ever did. Um, certainly in the 3.0 era, that show was landmark. And I see that show as a direct precursor to The Baker's Dozen because Fish was forcing themselves to be limited in their set list choices. And that happened during The Baker's Dozen because they were not repeating any songs. And so when they did that, they opened up the possibility of creating transcendent improvisational moments where normally there were none. And I think the undermined from the 831-12 show in particular demonstrates that sort of creative limitation that they put on themselves and then the solution that they had in order to achieve that. The groove just keeps going and right away Mike starts to play uh, C natural instead of C sharp. And what that does is it takes it from this A major blues space into an A minor modal jam, specifically A Dorian, which gives it this sort of floating, psychedelic minor key feel. stressing the F sharp, which is the what we sometimes call the Dorian sixth. Dorian it sounds like A minor. And then you get uh, the raised sixth, the Dorian sixth. So it's kind of like a mixture of, of minor and major. Trey's stressing that, and Mike is stressing the C natural. You get this sort of beautiful sound, and the whole thing then gets pushed into D major, and they create this beautiful peak around D major. What I hear in particular there that I think really carries into the Baker's Dozen and subsequent jams is the the slowness of the melody that Trey uses to build that peak, right? It's this. Right? It's really slow. Mm-hmm. 
right? It's not the sort of really fast fireworks of the Went Jin or the Prague Ghost. Much closer to the sort of deliberate slow pacing of something like the Camden Chalk Dust Peak. So, you know, it's not the first time that Fish have made these sort of big anthemic peaks around really slow melodies, but that's a feature that really sticks out to me of that jam that you hear so many times in the Baker's Dozen. And then just the idea that you have to to, to create a, a, a set closer out of a song that's not usually a set closer. What you have to do to it, you have to peak it. You have to make it this major punctuation point on the set. And that's another thing that you see a lot in the Baker's Dozen. My name is Dave Calarco. I've written a blog called Fish Thoughts since 2008. That's Mr. Miner's Fish Thoughts to the uninitiated. And well, actually, here are his thoughts. Well, I, I, I've always seen Dick's 2012 as like this dividing point of their return. I feel like everything before that was kind of them getting their legs back, figuring out how to feel comfortable again. Trey figuring out how to feel comfortable sober as he's talked about, you know, on stage leading these jams. And there was a lot of re-evolution, redevelopment during 09, 10, 11, and 12 up to that point. That run that Dick's 2012 ended that that second leg of summer was really like the first time they were really stepped back into long form jamming again everything had been quite concise not not abbreviated but just like 13 to 15 minute jams were like the big ones you know which was obviously outside of the norm for everything we kind of come to know about them after the early part of their career I don't know exactly what happened at Dick's 2012, but something clicked and they were able to create several really long, successful, adventurous jams during that run that I feel really kind of like opened, opened the gates or the floodgates for the rest of the 3.0 era. I just kind of see it as this demarcation point where everything after Dick's 2012 was them moving forward in this new era, going into new places where everything before that was them redeveloping proficiency. And so now we're back to like fish being adventurous and doing new things again in terms of their jams and feeling that sense of anything can happen, which I didn't think was totally there before that. And so I think that is certainly that second leg culminating in Dick's was one, if not the most important transitional point in the 3.0 era. And, you know, you see them come back, I believe the next show is that 1228 MSG, 
and they play this like 20 minute tweezer, which is like everyone's freaking out about because like, where had this been, right? It was this amazing jam, like multi-sections, goes into like an ambient place, comes out into like this big peak. And it was just like this, this contour jam that like we had known years before, but had never seen, you know, in this comeback. Fall 13, I feel like that was probably the first tour, albeit a more abbreviated fall tour, that rather than like the month long summer runs where they really kept it going night after night after night. I think that was another piece of 3.0 fish that had been missing. We were getting these flashes of brilliance. They would play that Detroit show with the, the Love Supreme Disease Jam. They would play the Miami Tweezer in 09. They would play the Seven Below Ghost in Albany. There were all these moments where like, yes, that's it, that's it. And then the next night they'd play like 30 songs and not jam. Not that that's an issue, you know, like that's all part of the trip, right? Yeah, man, all part of the trip. You guys remember Brian, right? He's one of our companions on this ride. He's our producer, Brian Brinkman. The song catalog that was blown open in 2012 is shrunk significantly. We see far fewer songs played. We see songs played in much more of a tighter rotation, almost in a way to say that these songs speak for who we are, the songs that we wrote. And this becomes a, a, a theme leading up to two significant moments in 2013. But the other goal that it would appear from the outside is, is a significant focus on jamming, to take what was gained in Dix 2012 and at MSG 2012 and apply it over a much more broad scale. And it all starts, and, and one of the really main moments was the Tahoe Tweezer in 2013. It was Fish letting it fly, no rip chords, just phenomenal jamming, and jamming in multiple directions and exploring so much space in those 30 plus minutes. There's so little downtime in that Tahoe Tweezer. That's what makes it so special to me and, and really stand out. And certainly coming into that run and in the shows earlier that summer, I don't think many of us saw a 30 minute jam coming. So when they pulled it off and pulled it off so well, it was just one of those wow moments in, in fish history. That was Scott Bernstein again, by the way, jam bass. And as we move into the West Coast, obviously we have the Tahoe Tweezer from July 31st, 2013. The first jam to cross 30 minutes since Coventry's split open and melt. And one of the most accomplished and incredible jams the band has ever played. It's kind of clear they came out with a goal of jamming, but what you get out of this is a unified communication between them and the audience in a way that almost seems to represent everything the band has been working towards since 1983. This, this ability to have an audience that is so locked in 
and so focused while they are so locked in and so focused and put the two of them in a position where they are able to essentially make music together in, in a way that I don't think anyone thought was possible outside of the halcyon days of 93, 94, 95. It's a stunning moment between band and audience, and it really represents this achievement that, you know, by this point at 30 years, they are going to remain in this weird countercultural kind of extremity of, of American culture, but they have a community and they have a fan base that will follow them and will continue down the rabbit hole with them. And that is the legacy and that, you know, that moment, that jam represents that. It represents its culmination of 30 years of work, but it also, and this is where it's important with the Baker's Dozen, it also represents what is still possible, what is still potentially possible in Fisher's career. And, and it unlocks this ability to say, hey, let's not be afraid of what's going to happen if we get lost out there jamming on stage. Our audience will follow us. They'll be there for us. And and while the woos became a crutch in the moment, and, and you hear it when Trey just rips back into that chordal riff around like 26, 27 minutes. You, you know what I'm talking about when you hear it. But when he rips back into it, you hear the band acknowledge that, okay, the, the, the audience is here with us. We can do anything we want. The audience is here with us. Fall 13 is really a 30th anniversary tour. They didn't bill it this way. They didn't actually do a 30th anniversary show, but it's really, it's it's the 30th anniversary tour for all intents and purposes. It's in smaller gyms, a lot of hockey arenas, a lot of college basketball gyms throughout the Northeast. It's, it's them going back to their roots. They play Glens Falls for the first time in 19 years. You know, they play these shows at Hampton that features an outstanding version of Tweezer, a song which would follow them then to the Hartford version, to the Atlantic City version, and really showcase the boundless creativity of the band at the time. And then this all leads to the Reading Disease, which is probably the best version of Dallas Disease the band has ever played, and one of those jams that like everything that you could ever imagine the band bringing to the table in a singular jam, similar to the Tahoe Tweezer, where all of the fat is trimmed away and it's just about this riff that comes like out of the heavens, down to Trey, and, and he just presents in the most perfect way. And every time you listen back to it, you're like, how is this not a fully formed, communicated idea prior to this? It's just, it's unbelievable that it happened in the moment.
But all of this leads to one of the most, if not the most courageous thing the band has ever done, which was Wingsuit. Wingsuit was Fish's 2013 Halloween costume, where for the first time since they began the Halloween tradition in 1994, the band didn't cover a complete album by some other band. Instead, they performed one of their own albums, but with a catch. It was an album they hadn't recorded yet. Our writer here at Undermine, Benji Eisen, reviewed that night for Rolling Stone, giving it two thumbs up. Two years later, serving as Bill Kreutzmann's manager, he helped orchestrate the conversation between three members of the Grateful Dead when they agreed that Fish's Trey Anastasio was their collective first choice for the lead guitar slot for their five 50th anniversary reunion shows. Fare Thee Well, in the summer of 2015. Fare Thee Well was an extracurricular activity for Trey that took months of his time to prepare for, but it had an enormous payoff for Fish, impacting their sound, their jams, and their shows ever after. The most immediate result was Fish's lauded summer 2015 tour. But one could argue, we will argue, that ripple effects could be heard every night of the Baker's Dozen. So for the fairly well rehearsals, which were held on a soundstage in San Rafael, California, I don't know that Trey was the first one there, but Bill Kreutzmann and I would show up together on time, and Trey was always in the middle of either fiddling with his amp or fiddling with the pedals, or fiddling with his guitar, or very often having these kind of, you know, hushed tone powwows with his guitar tech. It was obvious that Trey was giving a lot of thought and a lot of care into how his guitar sounded, just as much as he was putting that same thought and care into what he was going to play on it. Grateful Dead jams, they're not really led by any one person. With Fish, often it's, it's one of them, even if all four of them are improvising together, it's often driven by something. Well, the Grateful Dead, they weren't driven by any one particular person. They are driven by the machine, by the collective unconsciousness, as it were, something that they learned back at the acid tests. But even the shoes that Trey was quote-unquote filling, even that guy was notoriously an anti-leader. So at some point during the rehearsal, as they're going through all the shows, it was Foolish Heart, and I think Bob Weir or else Phil Lesh, one of the two of them, said to Trey, you know, you can jam this out here a little bit. But by jamming, I mean, it, it was largely, they're talking kind of type one jamming where Trey was going to just solo. And then at the show, when they played it, Trey was really just leaning into the solo, and Bob was just about to give him the, the look that says, okay, cool, we're back into it. Trey has his back very intentionally at that point, turned to Bob so that he could continue to kind of take the jam out for another lap before letting the band lead into its landing. It was a victorious moment. Cut to the kickoff of Fish's summer tour just a couple weeks later. They debuted seven songs during the opening weekend in Bend, including some that, right or wrong, they sounded to me like they were Grateful Dead influenced. But you have this confluence of new material in the summer of 2015 afterwards. Trey having just spent all this time deep diving these new corners of his instrument so he could explore new sonic corners, paying attention to different effects and sounds 
and what he could get out of it. He had this renewed sense of joy with these three other people that he loves playing music with the most because the Fairly Well shows, it was almost like a job. There was very little bonding. There was very little celebrating or anything like that. It, it was you show up to work, you do your job, and you leave. And in terms of the type two mind reading and wizardry, I think that he realized how much he connects with the other guys and Fish. Fish, he's the guy that gives the look when the jam is over. That experience with the Grateful Dead, it was very instrumental to him, no pun intended, and, and it, it gave him a lot to think about and a lot of new avenues to explore. After all, he just spent you know months deep diving this whole band's catalog, and now after that, he's able to go back to his own and that brings a, a sense of reunited joy of, of discovery. It's like when you go on a vacation and you come back, but you have this new perspective on the world. We have Trey coming into Fish with a level of preparation that he admittedly has not even approached, certainly in the 3.0 era. And so all of a sudden, by the second show of tour, which is that Ben show with the simple in it, which is a really cool second set, and then most significantly by the third show of tour at Shoreline, which is one of the best sets of the whole summer, we have this band fully clicking in a way that we hadn't seen in this era. Part of that was that these Fairly Well shows had happened. And I feel like there was a sense there wasn't a lot left to prove. Like there was a stamp of approval that Trey got and Fish got in those concerts through the Grateful Dead fan base, through the culture at large, which kind of allowed them a different stature, even if it's just in thought or concept. And they came into summer 15 and I feel like there was a pressure that they didn't feel any longer. And as this tour starts, we start seeing really diverse improvisation, jams that built thematically with like these motifs that were going in all different directions every night. One final waypoint that needs to be mentioned at least is Magna Ball. It was peak fish during a fish peak. The pinnacle of fish 2015, Magna Ball, incorporated all of fish's defining aspects and showcased them in their best light. And musically, improvisationally, the band appeared to hover above the ground. I think Trey said something to the effect of they couldn't have played a wrong note that weekend if they tried. I'm glad they didn't try. We're going to take a brief pause here for a commercial, but when we return, our DeLorean will have finally arrived on the steps of Madison Square Garden in 2017. Almost. I guess Doc programmed it to arrive about a week early. Here, have a cigar, and we'll see you in Chicago. 
During the break, one of the lab-coded workers in the Undermine Laboratories, 36 from the vaults, Rob Mitchum, decided to join us. Rob and I were just talking about the oft-overlooked five shows leading up to the Baker's Dozen, which absolutely should not be overlooked. Three in Chicago, one in Dayton, and then one in Pittsburgh, leading up to their three-week slumber party in Madison Square Garden. In many ways, these five shows informed us at the time of what we could expect to see during the Baker's Dozen. If they served as a warm-up for the band, they served as a preview for the rest of us. Debuts, deep cuts, and lots of extended jamming, including must-hear versions of Carini, Prince Caspian, Mr. Completely, and in Chicago on night two, July 15th, 2017, one of the most exciting long-form simples that has ever been played. talk to us rob you know more so than the set list and the song selection it's like when i listen to those shows now you hear them practicing stretching songs out longer than they were comfortable with you know up to that point i think i would describe them as second wind jams that are very much winding down to where they would pull the plug in previous years but they push and they keep going some examples of these second wind jams are like the simple on July 15th in Chicago. It's it's almost a half hour long, but it, it, it could have ended around like the 12th minute. You can feel the, the jam winding down and somebody says, no, we're gonna keep playing. And they, they push it for another 15 minutes after that. Caspian in Pittsburgh is a similar type of jam. It's coming at the end of the first set. It seems like an obvious place to stop, and yet they push through where it seems like it's going to end, almost doubling the running time, you know, stretching it out into sort of a classic version of the song instead of just a routine version of the song. They're, they're, they're playing songs in ways that don't typically, or they're altering how they play songs to suit the setless placement that they've chosen for the song. That's Jake Cohen, again, a resident musicologist, who was about to admit that he was talking through a show. I was webcasting the second Northerly show, and I had a friend who was staying with me that weekend. Uh, she's also a improvising musician, and... You know, you're webcasting, you're not like sitting there and just like locked in and listening to every note, you know, we're chatting and, and stuff. And then like, at a certain point during the simple, I just remember being like, this is ridiculously good. And she was like, yeah, I was going to say like, is this still simple? It sounds like a bigger than jam. Absolutely. Oftentimes simple will sort of devolve in a weird way. It's uh, F, B flat, back and forth. And it's just like... Uh... Uh, 
back and forth, those two chords over and over again. And there's like a moment where the jam just kind of stops going back and forth between them and they just hang out on F. They stay on F. <laughs> um, and Fishman keeps the beat going. It doesn't sort of fizzle into a space or a weirdness. It just keeps going. And that would have normally been the point, you know, when you think of the big simple jams of of other years, you know, the, the Dick simple from 2014, it gets like funky at that point. The Great Wentz simple, it just has this beautiful sort of spacey, sort of mellow, gorgeous thing. Or like the Chicago 94 simple gets really weird and dark and dissonant and like goes full fall 94 weirdness on us. And this just keeps pushing. I think it's really indicative of the way that they say, okay, here's a song, like visualize a container, right? And rather than that container sort of exploding and opening into endless possibilities or diminishing into like a, a single point until it's nothing, they just open the end of the container and just keep going. And it turns into like a bluesy jam, you know, it's like an F blues kind of thing. And then that gradually gets quieter. And then out of nowhere, Mike just comes thundering in with this intense bass line and the whole thing turns into what sounds like an undermined jam. and they're in B flat at this point, so they've modulated. Maybe another year, they would have felt that this sounds like Undermind, let's seg into it. But in that situation, I think they were sort of forcing themselves to say like, let's see just how far we can push this simple. Because we're gonna have to do this over and over again over the next couple of weeks. We're gonna have to take a song, and at that moment where we feel like the jam might be ready to move on, we gotta power through that and keep going with it. Five shows leading up to the Baker's Dozen had a different feel than your typical first week of summer tour. It didn't feel like a kickoff. It didn't feel like a warm-up either, but it did feel like a prelude. With each passing night, you could feel the energy increasing as we all prepared for the summer's main event. 
And when we come back, we'll finally get a taste of donuts. I'm gonna go grab some milk. Meet back here in two. One of the common jam techniques that Fish uses is modulating. At least in 3.0, that was a, a very common thing for them to do. And the most common thing to do is for them to modulate up a perfect fourth. So if you're in the key of F, which is a, a key that a lot of their tunes are in. You guys remember Drew, right? But anyway, Mike's song, second jam from the Baker's Dozen, goes from F to B flat. Drew hits, who is big in Undermine Season 1 and Undermine Season 2. Same with Simple is also in F major, which they also segue there up to B flat. So it just goes up to the fourth scale degree and to a major key. And then a term that's frequently used is called a bliss jam, which is when it's major key. It tends to be very straightforward rhythmically, tends to be stagnant harmonically, and it ends up at least being very, it's a tension and release style jam. They do not do this every time that they modulate up a fourth, but most of the time this is what happens. And then it usually is led by Trey, who is melodically soloing and goes to a big release. maybe got a little bit predictable in early 3.0 is jams that sort of built to this big major key bliss peak. And one exciting development over the course of the 13 shows of the Baker's Dozen is as they went on, I think you started to hear more interesting improvisation, darker improvisation, more textured improvisation, things that they were doing sort of in the late 90s, but hadn't really brought back into the 2010s yet until they were put in this unusual situation. It started to bubble back up in Fish's sound, and to my excitement, they have continued developing that in the subsequent five years and picked it right back up in late 2017 as well. That voice still belongs to Rob Mitchum, but here's a new voice for you. So my name is Bubba Ayub. I live in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, my Twitter handle is at O-T-D-I space, the word, like on this day in space. And I'm a modular synthesist and electronic arts folklorist is how I like to put it. So I play modular synthesizers. I build modular synthesizers. More than anything else, my great passion is actually collecting the stories that people have to tell about synthesizers and using synthesizers and life in the electronic arts. So then naturally, Bubba has a lot to say about donuts, Paige's donuts. I think that's the direction that I'm hearing Paige move with synthesizers and just using them in the songs more. Like that's that's been one of my favorite things is actually like, you know, hearing a Susie Greenberg with a synth solo. It doesn't need to be in everything. I just want to hear it more often than not. <laughs> so yeah, I think that what Paige does is he takes an instrument and then he figures out how to play that instrument exactly the way that it needs to be played to bring his voice out. 
And there has not been a point in the history of fish when the instruments are more suited to them than today. I think by the Baker's Dozen, the only thing that wasn't perfect was the Moog and was the Alesis Andromeda. So at that point, you know, that's like a 80 or 90% average of his keyboard rig just being perfectly dialed in exactly what it needs to be to do the page thing. Sometimes all a person needs is that last piece. One of the 13, or perhaps 13,000 flavors that the Baker's Dozen gave us is that every night featured multiple must-hear versions, pinnacle renditions, and unforgettable jams. And while a few have become fan favorites, every jam was at least one fan's favorite. Let's check in with our little pool of fish fans that earned perfect attendance records for the Baker's Dozen regarding their favorite jams of the run, beginning with Matthew Ascone. So for me, the best jam of the run was the Chalk Dust Torture from Double Chalk Tonight. I mean, for starters, it is an absolute highlight package for the rhythm section. Mike and Fish are the driving force behind this entire jam. You know, Fishman is playing these super interesting syncopated dancey beats i think that's kind of one of the uh, hallmarks of the entire run is like fishman's drumming and not just the style he's playing but his willingness to push the jam he's probably added five seven nine minutes to multiple jams during this run which i guess is pretty important when you can't repeat anything and then there's a moment in the jam when he starts to lay on the wood block and once that wood block hits that's the moment where you go okay this is going to be special you can feel the entire crowd like lock in and take full notice when that wood block started. So he starts hitting that and Trey picks up on that hitch in this beat. And he starts adding these like grimy, distorted, like almost 2.0 style riffs. Like just the way it sounded is like that grime. And you know, they could have continued on like that and it would have been incredible in its own right. But then Fishman hits this snare roll and they go in this new direction and Trey takes it upon himself after they do this little start stop thing to just play these unbelievable searing, sustained, long, soaring notes. And it almost feels like in that moment, like, like it's a distant cousin of Camden 99.
And it's just pure, explosive, sonic bliss from the rhythmic groove foundation that starts the jam to this big, joyous peak. I feel like this jam has everything you can want and it leaves you speechless at the end. It's, it's just simply stunning. Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Timberg. You know, some people might have their favorite jam and I might also love that jam, but like, you don't have to have a favorite. I do have lots of favorites, you know, from Red Velvet, It's Ice, I connected with on an incredibly deep level. It felt like they took a single note and ripped it open and played within that note for like 10 minutes. And then when they came out, it was kind of like time hadn't passed and they had just carried on as if nothing had just happened, if they hadn't just played one of these incredible jams that locks into my brain in a way that almost nothing else does. I'm a huge fan of the Night 13 Simple. I think it's underrated by some people, and I think it's going up against an absolutely monstrous simple from earlier in the summer, from before the Baker's Dozen. Here we are on Night 13. People have like carrying around lists in their pocket of songs they haven't played yet, and everybody knew going into that set we were going to get a, a simple and a, a You Enjoy Myself. Even the the usher that I got became friends with during the show, like. As I was walking back in, he was like, enjoy the simple. And everybody knew it was coming. And man, did they absolutely execute on that one. There were, there were endless jams. Yes, the simple from Night 13 has won the Popular Choice Award for Best Jam from our extremely unscientific polling. Still, the one repeat from the Baker's Dozen has been all the times this past week we've repeatedly heard the sentence, that simple is my favorite. Here's Dave Calarco again. Simple was an easy choice. It was just like, if you had to play a jam that represented the Baker's Dozen for someone who had never heard it before, that's the one you put on. It just like encompasses the feeling, the vibe, the groove, the flow of so much of the music of that run. It really is like a peak example of all of them. Again, there's just like such a relaxed feel to it but it's so explosive, you know? It's almost like a paradoxical thing where they could be so laid back and yet so explosive at the same time. It's like not explosive in the way 95 was when like they had to play so much, so many notes to do it. It's like the opposite of that almost, but they're achieving the same energy behind the music. And, you know, it encompasses Paige's synth lines in those middle section. And sonically, that couldn't have come from any other place. You know, that's like a Baker's Dozen jam. And it's the last night, you know, it's part of this set. It is kind of like this poetic set, that last set, that really was an expression of everything that the Fish community is. Simple, come together, star man, you enjoy myself. And each of those songs I felt like added a piece to this like narrative set list that really encompasses 
what fish is as a band as a community as these musical prophets and as this celebration of us you know what a beautiful buzz i don't know after that show i was really taken by the message in that set the simple jam musically expresses that message in a way that is really really powerful Of course, 13 shows means more than just one highlight, more than just one favorite, and that's allowed. Better an embarrassment of riches than just an embarrassment. You know, talk all you want about the simple, and I'm not hating on it, but I got three words for you. You enjoy myself. That's the voice of Undermine listener, fish fan, and one-time page chef, Josh Falda. Whereas everyone else pointed to the simple, Falda likes the You Enjoy Myself that followed three songs later even more. The only fitting way to cap off 13 Amazing Nights at MSG. Trey just unloads on this version. The Isabella callback, and it's just, it's still so crazy when you re-listen to it. And you knew it had to be crazy because after the mayor made a proclamation for Fish declaring it Fish Day in New York City, you knew something crazy was going to happen, and it happened during that yam. Undermine team player Nick Sejas reminds us all that the oft-overlooked Maple Night had some pretty sweet and syrupy highlights in its own right. Oh yeah, this second set at Maple Night is just insanely good. Golden Age, Leaves, Swept Away, Steep, 46 Days, Piper, Possum. I mean, the Golden Age is 20 minutes, it's a great jam, but the surprise for me was that Leaves, not really a, a big ballad guy, but for some reason that just really hit me in, in such a sweet spot that night. And Trey's solo in particular, I thought was one of the most gorgeous things I'd ever heard in my life. Uh, and I was really moved. It was just like perfect. The swept away and the steep was really, really special. It was like a, like a 15 minute steep. Uh, and then I remember the transitions into 46 days. It, it, the 46 days jam was really, really sick. Fishman on the cowbell, just a really, really tight, threaded set. I mean, I know the best jam of the night was the swept away into steep. And the reason I know that is because right after the show, I took the F train home to Brooklyn. I decided to stop at a pizza shop right outside the station on 7th Avenue. And in front of me and behind me online were a bunch of fish fans. And we discussed it then. And we settled on swept away into steep.
That was Josh Falda again. So whether standing in line for pizza, sitting down in section 119 with a chicken sandwich in your hand, or scarfing down a box of federal donuts, we all agree that the Baker's Dozen has some pretty sick jams, right? Great. Well then, that means I can go home now. Don't worry, I'll be back and I hope you will be too. Our next episode is our season finale, and while there won't be fireworks or a ticker tape parade, we will still go out with a bang for our last episode on The Baker's Dozen as we discuss the aftermath, and something you probably won't hear on it right after these credits. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, Matt Dwyer, and Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. It is written by Benji Eisen. Production assistance from Rob Mitchum, Matt Bavuso, Christina Collins, and Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. Next week, on Undermine, we won't hear from multi-platinum-selling songwriter-producer Dan Cantor. Anyone ever asked me, you could be anywhere in the world at this very moment, my answer is at a fish show, without hesitation. To me, they're the most important thing in my musical world, but yet they're almost unknown in the mainstream, and, and how can that be? You know, I, I experience that the most firsthand when I brought Justin Bieber to his first show and, and he had that oh fuck moment you know he only had heard a fish ever from me never shutting up about them and, and playing you know riffs at soundcheck and stuff but you know he came to a show in Long Beach and he just couldn't believe all these people were there and then he came to Dick's and and to know that this has been happening for 30 years without him even knowing is just unbelievable. Well, we got to the end of the episode, folks. And I was thinking, there's something bothering me in the back of my mind. Like maybe there was one more jam to discuss. But I might be crazy. Hey guys, it's RJ. Great episode. But it seemed like we overlooked a big jam when you were running through people's highlights. I'm talking about the song that's never been jammed before and probably won't ever be jammed again. The song that created a meme of, is this still this song? The jam that cemented this run as legendary? You know, like Black Oleander surrounded by blues? The Lawn Boy? I don't know what's going on here, but let's talk about it. Once Paige gets on the guitar, you know it's gonna be a different kind of lawn boy. Fishman hits the beat and the jam takes off. Like Rob mentioned early in the episode, they were pushing themselves to jam things out. The guitar jam alone could have been it and it would have been a really awesome jammed out lawn boy. But then Paige hops back on his rig and we're off. Fishman's on the wood block. They start pushing in different directions. Fishman and Mike are driving it. They're experimenting with these avenues Around 14 and a half minutes in, 
Trey starts pushing them into the major key jam and it starts to lift off. And then you have this five to seven minute, beautiful, inspiring build. Again, it could end there, but Fishman never lets up and Trey starts this riff that's almost reminiscent of a 97 Isabella or something, and it just starts raging. Paige starts showing up big at this point, and about 20 minutes in, you have to ask yourself, is this still Lawn Boy? And it dissolves again and could have ended again, but then Trey leads it into one final, absolutely triumphant peak. So yeah, this is still Lawn Boy. And to me, the uniqueness of this entire 30 minute adventure and the rarity of jamming out this song really cements this as a highlight of The Baker's Dozen. So I just wanted to throw that in there, but I really love the episode. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com.